I'm going to say a prayer to get us started. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. I pray that you would help us to speak about Jesus in the kind of way that would just change something right in our hearts today. I pray that the power of your name would influence us towards what is right and what is good and what is best. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to confront that which is hardest and darkest in our hearts and souls, and we would find light and grace and hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. For almost 50 years in South Africa, apartheid was law, and it was a law that cruelly and forcibly separated people by race. You were registered by your racial group, which was either white, colored, black, Indian, or Asian. Where you lived, what you could do for a living was dictated by what group you were in. So if you weren't white, you couldn't own land, most jobs were unavailable to you, and you were moved outside of the cities into townships, your political rights were taken away, and penalties against protesting was very severe. Violence went unsanctioned, and when the system finally crumbled, the country was left with a decision to make. How were they going to come to terms with the terrible human right violations they'd experienced while still moving forward and creating a new, well-functioning, multiracial society? So when they got together and tried to strategize and plan, what historical context did they have with dealing with a situation like this? So historically, they had two options. The first was called a Nuremberg-style trial. This was based off of the trials of Nazis who were prosecuted after World War II. And in this type of system of justice, it's, uh, it's uh, victor's justice. There's retribution. Victims see the justice done. There's punishment for the aggressors. There's satisfaction, remembering the past. But there's also the very high risk for a coup from the police or the military. There's a huge financial burden on the country for defending state employees in a trial, and there's the impossibility of meeting legal standards to provide reasonable, without doubt, that crime occurred when you only have the witnesses speaking. It also leaves resentment for the people forced to submit to it and the perpetuation of violence and retribution. So on the one, it's the swift, severe justice. On the other hand, is general amnesty, which is bygones are bygones. We're going to let it all go. We're going to move on. Forgiveness, future. There's no military coup, but you run the risk of national amnesia. We forgot how terrible this was by not addressing it directly. Resentments on the side of the victims who'd suffered under apartheid and were denied once again healing for the hurts. So when they came together, they said, we don't really want to choose either this or this, so they created a third option. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created, and Desmond Tutu was placed as the chair of the commission. He said, we had to balance the requirements of justice, accountability, stability, peace, and reconciliation. We could very well have had justice, retributive justice, and had a South Af Africa lying in ashes. Our country decided very carefully where it would spend its limited resources to the best possible advantage. So what the um, commission did was put the primary focus on the victims. They received thousands and thousands of statements from victims and held public hearings where the victims were allowed to give testimony about the violations they'd experienced. 
the human rights defined as torture, killing, disappearances, abductions, ill treatment at the hands of the apartheid state. The perpetrators of these crimes were granted amnesty in exchange for publicly and fully disclosing their crimes. They had to confess to what they'd done. So the new option took pieces from both of the historical contexts while putting an emphasis on forgiveness and healing. What was interesting, though, was both voices were heard, the victim and the perpetrator. And by giving details of their crimes, the perpetrators not only validated the victim's experience, but they revealed details that became part of the public national record. What happened was all of these things were shown publicly. And Desmond Tutu said there's another kind of justice, a restorative justice, which is concerned not so much with punishment as with correcting imbalances, restoring broken relationships, with healing, harmony, and reconciliation. He said, however painful the experience, the wounds of the past must not be allowed to fester. They must be opened, they must be cleansed, and balm must be poured on them so they can heal. The commission was able to work towards restorative justice rather than ignoring everything that happened like it didn't exist or swift, severe penalty. It was put out there. It was part of the public historic record so that wounds, while they were opened, could be healed. And it highlights the power of confession. Now, we have experiences in our own life where we've been hurt where we've been, for whatever reason, hurt by another person or a relationship or a situation, and we know what it feels like to have the person who hurt you act like nothing happened. We've been there where we've been denied any confession or any ability to move past the wound because they just completely ignored it. They acted like it never happened, and it tears you up inside. Or we've been on the other side where we've been severely hurt or wounded by somebody and they, they, they treat us like it's not that big of a deal. You're just overreacting. Have you been here before? So now not only do you hurt, now you have like the extra like you're crazy, it's your fault, not mine, hurt on top of the hurt and it doesn't do anything to heal the wound. For some of us, we've experienced the power of somebody saying, I hurt you and I'm sorry and the freedom we felt when they said that to us. For some of us, we've been in each one of these categories. We've denied that we hurt somebody else. We've acted like it wasn't that big a deal because we didn't want to really own it. Or we've been in the position of looking at somebody and saying, I get it, I did it, and I'm sorry. And the power of confession brings freedom and forgiveness. St. Augustine said, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. We can't heal what we won't admit. We can't move past what we won't take out and look at. And as we've been working our way through the 12 steps, what's beautiful about them is they build on each other. It's not a one step and done. They grow, they branch out. The one is connected to the other so that it pushes you further and further and further into health and growth. Now, some of us like those uh, Band-Aids we put over the, the wound, right? Like, don't peel off the Band-Aid. I like it right there, because when you open it up, it hurts all over again. But if it's ever going to heal, it must be opened so it can be cleansed and healed the right way. 
So we started with the position, I can't, but God can. I think I'll let God. That's the melody of the first three steps. I'm powerless to save myself. I'm powerless to save anybody else, but by the incredible power of grace, God can. And then we take an honest look at ourselves, a searching and fearless moral inventory. We have parts of ourselves we don't like. We have things in ourselves that annoy us that we still struggle with it. We have parts that disgust us and repel us. We have thoughts, emotions, impulses that we find painful and hurtful, embarrassing, and even horrifying. We have the parts of ourselves that we cannot see or that we've dug in so deep we refuse to see. We have the persona that we hide behind, the public image, right? I want everybody to see me as this kind of person. They can't see the person behind the curtain. That's my hidden, secret, private person. And rather than deal with any of these parts of ourselves in a healthy way, what do we do? <laughs> we hide it. We bury it. We ignore it. We push it down and act like it doesn't exist. But we cannot heal what we refuse to see. We cannot work through the things that we won't give attention and care to. The longer we hide, the larger it looms, and the more powerful it feels inside of us. Friends, if it's our secrets that are keeping us sick, we have to stop hiding. We got to pull them out. We got to look at it. We got to name it. I love one author said, self-awareness is like an onion. There are multiple layers to it, and the more you peel back, the more likely you're going to start crying at inappropriate times. That's real, right? We've been putting on layer after layer our whole life, and you start peeling those layers away, and all of a sudden a song hits, and you're weeping, and you can't even say why. Because the more we see, the more we realize, the more light we shine on the places we've been hiding, we get to see who we really are. We cannot grow into our best selves if we refuse to go in and dig deep into self-awareness. Which brings us to the beautiful piece. We've looked. We've seen it. We know what's there. God bless you if you did that moral inventory this week. That's hard, isn't it? That is stressful and hard, and you're like, I wish I had, like, my old, like, uh, trapper keeper so nobody could see my notes, right? Like, you can't see what I got going on here. All right, but what do we do next? Because naming it's something, but it, 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 what are we going to do with it after it? So in the next steps, 5, 6, and 7, it says, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We were entirely ready, number six, to have God remove all of these defects of our character and seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So now that we've done this inventory, now that we've acknowledged what's there, we have to bring it back to God. We have to honestly and humbly say, God, this is what it is, and I need help. I got myself into this mess. I'm here. The mess exists. For whatever reason, I'm here, and I need help. Now, on the surface, that speaks easy, right? Like just saying, hey, God, I need help. But as a way of doing life, it is going to challenge us daily, again and again and again, to stop hiding. We have bad patterns and behaviors and habits because they're comfortable, because we've gotten comfortable there, and a new life challenges us. Don't go back to what was comfortable. Live out here where you feel vulnerable, even though it's hard. The Apostle John, he spent time with Christ. 
he spent a lifetime teaching about Christ and what he'd seen and what he'd learned and what he'd heard. And at the end of his life, he writes these beautiful letters sharing what a lifetime of thinking about Christ has taught him. And in 1 John chapter 1, he says this, verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word isn't in us. John says, you know, we really have three ways of approaching sin. When we did this inventory and we saw the things that were there, the good, the bad, the ugly, what we didn't like, what was going on, we approach it in three different ways. One is we deny it. Second is, we think we're above it and we're beyond it. And third is, we confess it. When we look deep in and we confront these things, what do we do? There is, because we are human beings, we want to deny that they aren't there. They're not real. They don't exist. Or we want to say, well, I'm just going to do more good things. I'm going to work to be a better person. I'm going to remove myself from the bad things. Or John says we could actually confess them to God. But he gives us the problem with the first two approaches and the promise that we find in the third. So what happens, we confront this. When we deny what's really going on, we go right back to where we were. We turn back to hiding in the shadows, and we avoid the problem, and we avoid the shame, and we avoid the guilt. But he says, you're fooling yourself. If you're going back to where you were, remember, it's that beach ball. It's going to come out. It's going to splash on somebody. You take your eye off of it for a second, and it's not just you who receives the damage. It's everybody standing around you. When we say that there's nothing there and we hide and we deny it, we're fooling ourselves because it is going to come out. It's going to come up, and the bigger the splash is dependent on how long we've been holding it down. He said, on the other side, when we think we're above it, right? I'm a Christian now. I'm a good person. I do good things. I know the Bible. I serve. I can sing the songs. I show up. I've, I've got all the religious yeses and none of the bad noes. If I say I'm above sin because I'm such a good person, I go right back into the hypocritical, judgmental spirit that Christ said you cannot live a healthy life in. What happens is I've removed myself from actual humanity, and I've put myself in the realm of above everybody else. So where I feel weak and not good enough, I project that onto other people. So I can now judge you for what you're doing so I don't have to confront that which lives inside of me. I can look down on you as worse than so I can feel bad about myself. Don't have to feel bad about myself. And look, John doesn't mince words here. He says, you might not say this outright because I know you're religious. You don't say these things. But if that's the world we're living in, you make God out to be a liar. And he's not, he, he says that on purpose. He wants us to hear the tension that lives in these words. Why does he say that? Because if I say I'm so religious that I'm above sin, then what I'm saying is, God, I don't need you. I just need more rules. I just need more laws. Just give me more teaching. Just give me more time to work this all out. I don't really need what Jesus Christ did for me. Just doing enough good things is enough. But if that were the case, why in the world would God need to send Jesus Christ in on our behalf? So what I'm saying is, God, you're not right. I am. <laughs> right? 
What I'm saying is, God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. But John says none of these approaches work because none of us are free from sin. Sin is a problem for everybody. John is an old man talking about this, and he's still digging in deep to the problem of sin. The apostle John, uh, Paul, he said, I do what I hate. I know I don't want to do it, and still I find myself doing it. What hope do I have? We have to admit this is a problem for everybody. Whether I haven't said yes to Christ, whether I just said yes to Christ, or whether I'm 50 years into saying yes to Jesus Christ, this is a problem that must be confronted. And Richard Rohr said, what we do not consciously acknowledge will remain in control of us from within, festering and destroying us and those around us. So John gives us a third option. Either or doesn't work. But what if there's a third way? He says if we're going to move forward, if we're going to live with dignity and purpose and honest and truth, we need accountability, we need responsibility. And John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He says we need Jesus Christ because guess what? We're the problem. <laughs> we can't also be the solution. We need a solution that's bigger than us, beyond us, greater than us, and we find that in Jesus Christ. So we have to take what we have and move forward towards him. I love the writer and preacher John Stott. We struggle with what is sin, right? What's right? What's bad? I don't want gray. I want clear cut. Give me black. Give me white. It says the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That's the core of it right there. It doesn't matter if I'm doing wrong things. It doesn't matter if I'm hiding behind good things. Sin is a problem that must be confronted. It is a problem that we cannot fix. And so long as we do not confront it, something beyond us is controlling us. And it doesn't heal until we look at it. This is hard, friends, so please stay with me. Because it's so much easier to talk about what exists out there than it is to what exists in me, right? I can talk about evil that exists in the world. It's ugly and it's harsh and it's terrible and it's violent. And it, it's harder to talk about the evil that exists in me. But evil exists where God is absent. If darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of God. And within all of us, we've put ourselves in places that only God deserves to be. And if I don't confront that in me, I'm only always looking out and projecting at others. I can't heal. I can't grow. I can't change what is inside of me. Sin isn't the problem that exists out there. It's the ugliness that lives inside of me. The guilt in me, my mess, my lies, my shame, my hurt, my judgmental, critical spirit. And John says, look, you can't deny it. You can't act like you're above it. The only healthy option, the only way out is through. You have to confess it to Jesus Christ. And I know some... 
Some of the problems seem huge and insurmountable, right? You don't know the darkness that's inside of me. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the places I've been. You don't know the things I've said. We all say these problems are so big and they're worse than anything else. And the lie that we believe right there, which separates us from the hope of help, is our pain, our problems, our struggles are bigger, worse, and uglier than anybody else. That if people really knew me, they'd never want anything to do with me. And that's the lie that we believe. Can I just, please, please hear me on this. In the 2,000 years since Christ was here, he's seen worse. In the history of all humanity, he has seen and forgiven worse. There are millions of people who came before us who have problems just like ours. There are millions of people, they're not even born yet, who will have problems just like ours. I don't say that to minimize. Your problems are hard. They hurt. They aren't unique, though. Your problems are the very place that God wants to meet you to do his best work. Listen, I, one very smart person. Your problems may be inevitable, but the meaning of each problem is not. We get to control what our problems mean based on how we choose to think about them, based on the standard by which we choose to measure them. Everybody has problems. That Nobody who lives on this earth and is breathing today is exempt from problems. They're inevitable, but the meaning behind them isn't. The responses that we give them are unique, and we get to decide what are the values, the standards by which I measure this problem in my life. And the Apostle John says, every one of us has Jesus Christ as a measure to fix our problems. We have Jesus Christ because he's faithful and just. I don't have to question if God saw these notes, if God saw my inventory. I don't have to question if he's going to be disgusted with me. I don't have to wonder if he's going to turn his back on me. I don't have to worry that he's going to publicly embarrass me or shame me or laugh at me. I don't even have for a second to question if he could ever have a place for somebody like me. Because he is faithful and he is just. I can trust him with the darkest corners of my hearts. The secrets, the lies, the damage that's been done. I can bring him to Christ. I can tell him what happened. I can trust them to him. Please, he's not going to be surprised. He's not going to be shocked. He's not going to just be like, oh my gosh, that is, that's not the response we get from Jesus Christ. Christ isn't waiting for us with a pointed finger. He's waiting with open arms. Please hear me. The darkness that you've been hiding in, the shadows that you want to hide from, that is the very place that Christ came to meet you in your life. Before I knew God even existed, before I had any thought or acknowledgement of a God in this world, before it even entered into my mind that I couldn't and I needed help, God already acted. God already moved towards you and I by sending Jesus Christ into this world. While I'm lost in darkness, Christ has already done the hardest work by giving his life on the cross. 
Christ already went before us. Please, friends, he didn't turn his back on us on the road to Calvary. He will not turn his back on us today. He knew who you are. He knew who you were. He knows who you've yet to become. And he still walked valiantly and courageously towards the cross. He didn't give up on us then. He will not give up on us today. Please, even where I've been faithless, he has been faithful still. What waits for you on the other side of confession? It's renewal. It's restoration. It's a new hope, a new chance, a new life, a new strength. God stands ready to heal and forgive. His arms are open. He wants to embrace us. He wants to make us new. He says, I don't want you to live this life that you've been living, bogged down by pain and sin and guilt and defeat. That's not who you were created to be. Our loving Savior gave his life that that did not have to be what defines us. When we come to him, he's ready and willing to make us new. Remember Dane Ortland. he said, whatever's crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. Jesus Christ, his heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he's there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you. Not on the other side, but in that darkness, Christ's heart for you is gentle and lowly. Please, I, I just want to speak Jesus to you right now. I love that song so much because we forget and we don't fully grasp and understand the power, the majesty, the wonder, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Right where I am, Christ wants me. He doesn't want me to get my mess up, cleaned up, and then figure it all out and find my way to him. He doesn't make me jump through 10 hoops to figure it out and solve the problem and then come to him on the other side. Right in the middle of my mess, Christ knew me and gave his life willingly for me. Right where I am, I need to admit to Jesus Christ that sin has gotten the better of me. I have to admit that I need his help. I got to humbly ask him to make me new. Look, I can't heal myself, but Jesus Christ can. I can't live a perfect life, but Jesus Christ already did. He lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I should have died. I can't erase this. I can't figure it out on my own, but God didn't say I needed to. He said, I need to turn to Jesus Christ, and all the help I need is found in him. There's no life God can't change. There's no damage that's been done that's so broken, Christ can't weave it back together into a beautiful life and a beautiful story. You're not a hassle to him. He's not annoyed that you, have, you need help. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross, the joy of fulfilling the work that God had given him to do, the joy of a saved soul like yours and mine, the joy of something that was lost being found. 
for that, Christ endured it all so that on a day just like today, you and I could hear the call and say, God, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I don't even want to try anymore. And he calls us to repent and confess all the things that we've been looking to other than God to find our hope, to find our significance, to find our security. And we repent, we confess, and we believe in the name of Jesus Christ that he's the one who stepped into our history, our world, our story. And he came with a mission and a purpose, and he left nothing undone. He didn't leave you undone, friend. He said it's finished because nothing was left undone. He did the hardest work that needed to be done. And now he stands ready to love us and heal us and give us a new hope and a new life in him. And the promise, please, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far we are removed from our transgressions, from our sins, from our guilt, from our shame, from our pain, from our hurt. That's how far removed we are. But we got to turn to Christ. We got to admit, this is, this is real. This is me. This is what I've done. This is who I am. And I need you. There's one more area we got to look at, and this is a hard one. Because some of us are like, yeah, I've done this already. I'm good. I've got this. No problem. And we're still hiding from the things that we've always been hiding from. We just put a really glossy, pretty religious veneer on it. And there's one more place we have to get, get in front of. Because what gets in the way of us really humbly asking God for help? I mean, genuinely, there's asking God for help. I mean, if I don't say a dear Jesus every day, I'll make it to the end of the day. But there is a genuine humility that comes from taking off the blinders, taking off the things that we've been hiding behind, removing the layers of comfort that we've used for hope and security, and really admitting when something is wrong. And it's this idea of entitlement. Dr. John Townsend defines it as the belief that I am exempt from responsibility and I'm owed special treatment. That might be true for somebody else, but it's not true for me. And we use this two different ways. One is, I'm better than everybody else, I'm owed special treatment. Or the other way is, I've been through worse than anybody else, I'm owed special treatment. But anytime we feel we deserve something, we're owed something, we have a right to something, or we're somehow better than them, right? Like, their sin is terrible, at least I'm not that person. Anytime we go there, we rob ourselves of the opportunity for Christ's work in us through faith, hope, and love. Anywhere entitlement hides inside of my own heart, in my thinking, in my choices, in my actions, I can never really give God all of myself. Because what I'm saying is this part of me doesn't need you. Entitlement says, but yeah, God, look at all I sacrificed for you. God, look at what I did for you. Now what are you going to do for me? And that's really pride. Pride is all about what I am owed and what I deserve. What nobody else understands because they've never been through it before. Which means I have to challenge the areas of entitlement. I know we like to talk about other generations as entitled. It's so much harder. You know we project what's inside of us, right? Where we are most critical of others is what we need to confront in our own selves. 
Just, you can put that in your pocket for later. It lives in me, and if I don't confront it, it takes root and festers in me. And so Dr. Townsend gives us three principles. Three, he gives a lot. I'm only going to give you three. He gives us these principles to try and start poking holes in the pride and entitlement that we've just kind of started to ignore and grown comfortable with in our life. The first one is humility and dependence. Do you know what pokes a hole in entitlement? My complete dependency on God. I am nothing without him. I'm completely dependent on him. Listen, we belong to God, not him to us. He creates everything, and we are dependent on him. The acknowledgement, every good thing in my life has come from him. And I know you worked hard, and I know you scrapped, and you scraped, and you labored, and you worked to get to where you are. God bless you. Every good thing in our life is from God. And when I acknowledge that I am fully dependent on him, it changes my attitude. He creates, I depend. And humility isn't beating myself up and raking myself on the coals. It's just me putting God back in his place and me back in my proper place. I'm not God. I know I think I'm smart and I have really good ideas sometimes, and I know that people would just do better if they would listen to me, right? Still not God. I don't have it in me. I don't have even close to anything good enough in me. I have to accept the reality God is God and I am not and I'm dependent on him for every breath that I take. When we forget who God is, you know, a lot of, many, most of the worst decisions we make in our life is because we forgot who God was, or we forgot him in the moment. And when we forget who God is, we're out there on our own, thinking we can do what we can do. Life doesn't work that way. Entitlement says, I'm my own boss, you're not the boss of me. You don't depend on anybody. You, but it only leaves you more proud, more alone, and more empty. We have to admit, this humility stems from, we have one boss, and his name is God. <laughs> He's in charge, and I'm following him. We take control of our life by handing it over to him. God, more of you and less of me. Not my way, but your way. Remember what Christ prayed, not my will be done, but yours. That is humility and dependence on God. The second one is ownership. We have to take responsibility for our own lives. We have to take radical responsibility for our own lives, our choices, who we are and where we are. Freedom is found in how we choose to live. But we cannot make those choices until we fully own or take responsibility for the consequences of our life. We have to say, this is my fault. I did this. I got here. I made this choice. It didn't work out right. It hurt me. It hurt other people. When we blame other people for our problems, we leave ourselves in a powerless position, unhappy. I'm the victim, and as long as I'm the victim, I can't do anything about it. And nobody ever wins the blame game. We get lost there. We move from passing through to setting up camp, putting down stakes, and living there. And as long as we live there, we never can take ownership of our life and what comes next. This is probably one of the most powerful sentences I learned this year. What happened to you, it's not your fault, but it's still your responsibility. You are responsible for what you do next. 
no matter how hard, no matter how terrible, no matter how damaging it was, it's not your fault. And somebody needs to hear that today. It's not your fault what happened to you. What was done to you, what you went through, it's not your fault. But friend, if you're going to have a healthy life, it is your responsibility now. What do you do next? What choice do you make next? What part of your life do you own by how you respond? The last human freedom. You can't control what's been done to you, but you can control how you respond. But you got to take ownership. And then last, he says, accept the negative. Your flaws can't be forgiven and healed until you admit them. All of us have flaws. This is, this is why John, like, digs in deep. It's not like some people have flaws and other people don't. It's not like some people, the more religious you get, the more of a perfect person you are, and the rest of us are just messed up and willing to admit it. All of us have flaws. None of us are perfect. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we're working on it. We're growing in it. I'm more aware of it today than I was five years ago. That's the work of God in us. It changes. I can turn from one way to another. I can look from one way to another. I can change from one thought process to another. When we admit that we have failings and shortcomings and the negative lives there, we bring them to God. And we are able to open ourselves up to divine healing, help, and hope. And I do want to point this out because it says admit it to yourself, to God, and to somebody else. Your confession isn't safe with everybody. You don't have to tell everybody everything. You got some trusted people in your life, whether it's a therapist or a friend or a family member or somebody you know you're safe with, them you can talk to. Everybody else, it's not healthy. <laughs> And it's not necessarily safe. Don't think this means you got to tell everybody everything. But you do got to talk about it. You got to admit it. The freedom isn't in hiding it. That's where the damage is done. The freedom is letting it go. It doesn't weigh you down. It doesn't hold you captive. It's hard because you got to actually face yourself. You got to peel the bandaid off the wound that you put on however many years ago, whether it was when you were a kid or a teenager or an adult. And it's festered, and you got to pull it off and let it heal. But when we do, we are met with the powerful, awesome grace of God. We do not have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We get to live our authentic lives unapologetically who we've been created to be. The greatest freedom you're going to find, the greatest deliverance comes in knowing Jesus Christ in turning to him. Please, it's the love of Christ that forgives us. It's the love of Christ that redeems us. The love of Christ that restores us. He is the only one that you can give your life to, the only one that you can follow who will eternally forgive you and eternally make you whole. Nothing else can. C.S. Lewis said the almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Jesus Christ. It's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, our personal happiness centered on money, pleasure, ambition, hoping despite this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us we can not do. If I am a grain field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it will not produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and resown. Stop holding yourself back from Jesus Christ. Let him in. Let him tear down the weeds and let something healthy grow up inside of you. 
if we try to go on as we always have, we will continue to drown in our lies and our secrets and our addictions. We'll live fractured, disrupted lives that are always afraid somebody's gonna find out. We'll remain hidden behind religion and cynicism and judgmental hearts and hardened spirits. Ah, but friends, when we confess all to Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just. His promise is he will purify us from all unrighteousness. We find peace, we find wholeness, we find rest. The weight that is heavy in our hearts will be lifted. Our true selves, who God created us to be, will find. God's grace is always going to be greater than my sin. His compassion is greater than my fear. His mercy is more than my heart can hold on to him. Turn to him, confess, repent, believe, and see what God might do inside of you. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us. I recognize the difficulty in moving forward in this way, but I also claim the promise that you've given us in Jesus Christ, that if we confess with our hearts, if we confess with our mouth and believe with our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saved. So, Father, we confess to you today, we know, we know the ugliness that lives inside of us. Would you please forgive us? We recognize the hurt, the damage that's been done. We don't want to hide anymore. We pray that you would shine a light into the darkest corner of our lives, the darkest corner of our hearts, and that the goodness of Jesus Christ would invade. I pray, Father, that your favor would rest upon us, and by name you would hear, we would hear you calling us. This is the way. Walk in it. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.